0: Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that today we can cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us and that there is no place that we can go that we will be separated from your love. As far as east to west, the height and breadth and width and depth of your love meets us even where we are at our point of felt need. And Lord, it's my prayer today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. During the month of September, our pastor preached a three-sermon series from Romans entitled, Squeezed. I love the title and I love the series. In so doing, Dr. Snowden, that we know is mad, encouraged us to hear afresh Paul's call not to be squeezed into the world's mold, but to be formed more fully into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus. We heard that we are not to be conformed to culture, but are to be transformed by Christ. We're not to be isolated from others, however, but committed to and in community with one another and with the one who is Holy other. This morning, I would like for us to return to Paul's magisterial epistle to the Romans. And on this first Sunday in October, cool and crisp and clear as it is, I want us to consider together the thanksgiving and the thesis of this remarkable letter. It's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. I want us to consider this passage together under the heading or the title, Obligated. So would you begin to turn to Romans, Paul's longest and most famous surviving letter. And as you do, allow me to express my appreciation to our pastor, for the opportunity to preach in his place. As it happens, Matt is at Truett Baptist Church in uh, Pearl, Mississippi today, preaching the 70th anniversary of a congregation that he formerly served. And we're all thinking, haste ye back. We're also mindful today of uh, the fact that I stand here in your debt, uh, in your debt for prayers you've offered and for support that you've given, not only to our family, but to Baylor University and her seminary. I'm in your debt, and you're in my heart. Now, let's listen to and for God's Word together, Romans 1. Have you made it there? I didn't hear many pages turn. (laughs) I'm aware of the fact that most of you are using your app. Uh, Please wait until after the service to text. (laughs) It might be tempting along the way. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, literally barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it stands written, the righteous will live by faith. One week ago today, the famed American golfer Arnold Palmer died, and as news of his death spread, tributes began to pour in, not only from fellow golfers, as one might have anticipated, but also from other public and political figures, including the president. As you might imagine, reactions were various. Be that as it may, time and again, Palmer's friends and admirers expressed how much they and the game of golf were indebted to the so-called king, whose friendly flair and swashbuckling style captured the imagination and affections of millions. Army, Arnie really did have an army. When one thinks of Paul's epistle to the Romans, one does not necessarily think of Hallmark, but one does think of many other things regarding the letter. The sinful human condition, justification by faith, the first and second Adam, sanctification by the Spirit, the boundless love of God through Christ, the history and mystery of Israel, the weak and the strong, Paul's many partners in ministry, including his women partners, Phoebe and Prisca and Junia. And if those things don't come to mind, perhaps the Roman road does. Whatever comes to mind, it's not likely that when you think of Romans that all of a sudden the word obligated or indebted flood your mind. And truth be told, they probably should not, because the term rendered obligated, or in some of your translations, I am a debtor, in Romans one fourteen, appears but two other times in the whole of Romans. For those of you who are accounting or who care, 8.12 and 15.27. And it only appears one other time in all of Paul's letters, in Galatians 5.3. That being said, as I've read Romans 1 of late and have reflected upon my and our Christian responsibilities and opportunities, the phrase, I am obligated, or I am a debtor, have stood out to me in stark relief. So this morning, I'm simply asking you to tarry with me for a few minutes over this concept and this text i'm not so sure you need a number two pencil but you can take notes if you would care to for those of you who are here week after week mats invites us to take a number two pencil for those of you who are still awake that might occasion some laughter It was an early game yesterday. Come on, help me. <laughs> help me. On the heels of an expansive salutation in Romans 1 1 to 7, Paul gives thanks to God for believers, these brothers and sisters in Rome. As Rome is mentioned, we remember that it is the epicenter of power and culture in Paul's day. The faith that is the believing obedience of the Roman Christians was known far and it was known wide. Paul may be a bit hyperbolic when he says that their faith was known everywhere. Truth be told, it was known in the Christian news networks in which Paul found himself everywhere he went. It was as if though he heard of the Romans' faith. And for Paul, this was grounds for thanksgiving. What is more, the apostle who preaches the gospel, this gospel, as we learn in the initial verses of Romans, promised beforehand and fulfilled in Christ Jesus, God's Son, the apostle who preaches also prays. He prays for the Roman Christians on an ongoing basis, and he prays that somehow, some way, his way will come to them. Up until that point in time, that is when Paul wrote Romans, as Robin rightly said, from Corinth around A.D. 57-58, Paul had only heard of the Roman Christians and prayed for them, but he had yet to see them face to face. The time had now come in Paul's life and ministry that opportunity would give way to allow him to come to Rome. He had finished his ministry, best he could tell, in the eastern Mediterranean. He was on his way to Jerusalem to deliver the gifts that Macedonian Christians had offered the impoverished saints there. But now he was ready, as Horace Greeley once put it, to go west, young man, go west. Paul gives three reasons in this thanksgiving for his longing to see the Roman Christians not simply as a tourist, but as an evangelist. First of all, he wants to share an undefined, yet-to-be-determined spiritual gift with them. He wants to do so not in order to draw attention to himself, but so that they might be strengthened in faith, because that's the way spiritual gifts works. God gives them to us so that we in turn might share them with others, their divine empowerment for the upbuilding and uplifting one of another. Paul not only wants to share a gift with them, but he wants to be enriched and encouraged by their faith. Paul recognized full well that it wasn't a one-way street that even as he gave, he would receive. And then thirdly, he wants to reap a harvest He gives thanksgiving to God. He longs to be with the Romans so that he might reap a harvest. That is, that he might win people to Christ among them, even as he had among other Gentiles in the midst of his ministry. You see, for Paul, like Jeremiah of old, the gospel was a fire that was shut up in his bones. And he can say in 1 Corinthians 9, "'Woe is me if I do not preach.'" gospel. As Paul continues and even concludes the introduction of his letter to the Romans, he touches upon his mission on the one hand in verses 14 and 15 and his message on the other. His mission, of which he speaks by way of obligation, indebtedness, is to proclaim announce herald the gospel, the good news, to both Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. That is to say, the cultured and the non-cultured, the urban dwellers and those who dwell in rural areas. Stated otherwise, Paul's mission was to preach the gospel, To everyone, everywhere, with special attention to the non Jews, the nations. You may recall, as Paul was en route to Damascus, he encounters the risen Jesus, who grasps him and calls him, like the prophets of old, to take the gospel to the people. And Paul, in so doing, is carrying out the vocation of Israel to be a light to the nations, an extension of God's grace and mercy to others and to the uttermost. In Paul's day, the Caesars would talk about their work and their rule along lines of euangelia, glad tidings, good reports... Sometimes when a Caesar was born, it was said that now the good news is being promulgated, heralded. But Paul says that whatever the Caesars can claim pale in comparison to the singular good news and gospel of one who is greater than Caesar, even the Christ even as Paul's mission was to preach this gospel, Paul's message was, in fact, the glad tidings of God in Christ. Paul was mindful that it was foolishness to some and a scandal to others, but he declares in one sixteen that he's not ashamed of this gospel. Then in what might be regarded as the thesis of the letter, Paul gives two reasons that he is not ashamed of the gospel. First of all, Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. God's choice of the people of Israel mean that this is true historically and then as Paul reflects upon the fact that we as gentiles have been grafted into Israel in Romans 9 to 11 we begin to see how this is true theologically even in the midst of Paul's ministry frequently he finds himself in synagogues declaring the gospel to his kith and kin to the Jewish people and often at great cost to him. Recall that he can say in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four that on five occasions he received the 39 lashes, that is, the synagogueal discipline. Paul says this gospel is a power. It's a power that both outstrips and outshines other powers. It transforms and empowers all who would call upon the name of the Lord. The gospel is not a special preserve for the elect few. Rather, it's a dynamic force, an immeasurable blessing to all who will believe and declare that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. And when one does, all things become new. For if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. The difference is about as stark as the back half and the balconies of the sanctuary with the front half. Home improvements are coming with the front half. It will be Matt in the round in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> the gospel is a power. And the gospel is, in fact, a revelation of God's person god's righteousness the gospel shows us who god is and what god does the gospel reveals the righteous god who credits righteousness to those who believe so that these faithful people might lead fruitful lives as envisioned in the text that paul cites from habakkuk 2:4 the righteous ones will live by faith. I don't know about you, but as I read these lines from Paul, it seems to me that his commitment to and passion for the gospel is palpable. And if we would allow our love for and devotion to the gospel to wax and to wane from time to time, it doesn't seem to have been the case for Paul. His commitment to the gospel is in fact clear, and he regards himself as obligated and is indebted to the gospel and its proclamation, not least to the nations, to the Gentiles, that he might herald God's grace to those who have yet to hear it. As I was reading afresh Romans 1 and came upon this statement I'm obligated, I begin to wonder to myself, why is it that Paul sensed that he was obligated, indebted to the gospel and to people who had yet to hear the gospel? And I gather that the reason that Paul sensed himself obligated is because he knew that he had been entrusted with the gospel, that it was a sacred trust that he had received and thereby was responsible. Paul says as much even in his earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians, he says it in 2.4 that he is entrusted with the gospel and he makes similar statements in other places in his epistles. And this morning I want us to see what was true of Paul is no less true of us. You and I, we, have been entrusted with the gospel, both as a church and as individual Christ followers. One of the commentaries that helped me in preparation for this message was that of John Stott, and John Stott rightly notes, and I quote, "'Even though we are not apostles,' If the gospel has come to us, which it has, we have no liberty to keep it to ourselves. Stott continues, Nobody may claim a monopoly of the gospel. Good news is for sharing. We are under obligation to make it known to others. For as we have sung one to another all these years, Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. What our congregation, friends, has to offer others is not only a strategic location on 5th and Webster across from Magnolia, as if we needed reminding, not only fine facilities that are becoming finer by the day, Have you given yet? Matt would want me to ask you. (laughs) Not only a storied history where we stand in a long stream of those who bear such names as Carroll and Dawson and Feaser, and not only cutting-edge, age-graded ministries, but first and foremost, friends, what this congregation has to offer others is that which we've been entrusted by God and our predecessors in the faith that is in a word the gospel and even as this sanctuary is intentionally shaped like a cross so it's true that we are to lift high the cross and that which we say and in that which we do pastor Carry berkeley and the fine folks at Greater Ebenezer Baptist Church, I think understand this a little more fully than most. I don't know if you've had a chance to read your Waco Tribune Herald yet, but when you do today, you will see that front and center is Dr. Berkeley. And as he and his church had the opportunity to sell their strategic property located right where Panera Bread and all of these other restaurants are going, they decided to say, thank you, but no thank you. Because in the midst of this congregation's life, ministry really is more important than money, and we understand this location to be our mission, and we're delighted to welcome others who are moving in round about us because as they do, we want to bear witness even to them. The majority of us understand financial trusts. I'm not a quick study, even though I'm a son of the banker, but I think I understand now that a trust along financial lines is when the trustor gives the trustee rights to hold property or assets for the third party. I can be corrected later, but I think that's right. Ours, friends, is a spiritual trust. God, the trustor, has entrusted us, those who know him, the trustees, with the gospel for the benefit of the other, that is, the third party. And the obligation and trust that is ours in the gospel Is not to be driven by some sense of guilt any more than it was meant to be in the past, driven by those Sunday school envelopes with the boxes where we were meant to tick, have shared my faith. But rather, our obligation is to be animated by grace and gratitude. As Paul can say, It's by God's grace that I am what I am. And this grace has brought us safe thus far. And this grace will lead us home. And when we hear the well done, I gather that all that we will be able to muster and to mutter in that moment to our Master is much obliged. And perhaps we will Say the same to others who led us to faith in Christ, and I wonder, I just wonder if anyone will be able to say the same to us. I'm about finished, and you're relieved, but allow me to ask a few other questions before we respond to the invitation. Here they come. First of all, have you embraced the gospel? The question's straightforward, but it flows like this. Have you entrusted your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? If not, I trust that you can see your way clear to do so even now, even here. Those who receive Christ by faith are reconciled to a righteous God. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us and if you've embraced the gospel are you extending the gospel are you sharing the good news with others to be sure many of us traffic in circles where we already know believers and if we traffic in circles where the vast majority of our friends are believers then perhaps we need to broaden our circles but regardless we need to be mindful of the gospel, and we must be willing to share a clear and winsome witness for the hope that is within us. A third and final question is this. Are you exhibiting the gospel? Not only have you embraced it, not only are you sharing it and extending it, but have you come to a place where you recognize that you're the only Jesus that some will ever see. Paul puts it this way. We have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Some of you may know that this weekend is the plane of the Ryder Cup. It's at Hazeltine Golf Club in Chaska. I'm told that's outside of Minneapolis, Minnesota. For those of you who just view the Ryder Cup as background noise for your naps, you might not know what the Ryder Cup actually is. It's a biennial professional men's golf competition played between teams from Europe and the United States. And if you're watching, and I am, the singles come today... Any of the telecasts, you do not have to look too hard or to listen too closely to detect the inspiration and appreciation of Arnold Palmer from the American squad. My hope this day is that people don't have to look too hard or to listen too carefully to see the fact that it is the love of Christ, the King who controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Our Lord and our God, we're grateful that you made Christ the one who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of you, God, in him. And even as the placard upon this pulpit reads, Sir, we would see Jesus. We pray in this moment that even as Christ has been lifted up, that Spirit of God, you will now draw us to Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And we offer you our prayer in his name. Amen. Friends, as we stand and sing out of my bondage, I invite you to respond. There will be folks at the front to receive those who have a public decision to make. Let's stand.